this last weekend, uh, Thursday night, um, we had several, um, by several I mean five, five teenagers over at our house for a campfire, five teenagers from the neighborhood as we are looking to, yeah, start a youth group up and going. And uh, afterwards, the one team who invited everybody said, hey, I'm sorry there was only five. And I said, oh, don't worry about that. Don't ever apologize for that. There was plenty of times when we were first starting out that I was preaching to six people in the sitting where you guys are, and uh, eight people. And so that was awesome. And to have five teenagers, four of which I don't believe know the Lord, uh, coming over and hanging out, that is awesome. So really excited about that, but also, yes, I wanted to come again. Um, but it used to be a really good night in the elementary school when we would have seven or eight kids in elementary school, and I think for like four weeks in a row we've had over 20 in elementary school, so it's just awesome that they are now going to be discipled by our leaders. We are so excited, along with the other little kids' leaders. So, just thought I'd say all that really quick. I also want to answer a lot of texts and phone calls that will happen tonight and the rest of this week. Um, no, we are not meeting inside permanently now. So, don't text me, don't call me. Uh, we thought who we are going to meet. We, this was all came about starting at about 7 a.m. this morning and working through and said, yeah, I think we can do it. This will be a good time to kind of enact a rainy day policy. Uh, we also know cold weather is, and we'll be revisiting it this coming the coming two weeks in our staff meetings. Uh, but I don't know. So if you ask me, I just, I just don't have an answer for you yet. Uh, but I promise I will, I will let everyone know as soon as we do. However, I do want you to call and text me about what we're going to be talking about tonight. In fact, that's a big takeaway, uh, if I can give kind of a spoiler alert. And this message is different than most of the messages that I've done since Hope Church started now almost five years ago. In that, it wasn't that long ago that I was, by that I mean an hour ago, I was in my office basically rewriting everything. It's been a struggle this week because of the nature of the topic. And it's um, not necessarily a difficult thing to preach, but it's also a difficult thing to know people and, and the experiences that I've had uh, and in people that I've worked with in, in my past. And so uh, by that, I mean I've worked in uh, drug rehabilitation centers. I've worked in inner city ministries. I've worked in inner city camps. I've worked, I've had to go through a lot of trainings for working with children who've been sexually abused, uh, uh, working with adults at four different Bible colleges I've been on staff at, of adults who are still trying to figure out what does this mean because this is what happened to me as a kid and I've never told anybody before. So this is something that's very sensitive to my heart. I've seen a lot of people very hurt. I've seen a lot of people in churches who've been hurt. I've seen a lot of people who it might not necessarily have been abused, it was their own choice of what they got involved in. And, and what they did. And I've had to watch them battle shame and guilt. And so this is something that uh, I'm taking a different approach on. I got many text messages and phone calls. I got a few. And if you're thinking I'm singling you out, I promise that you are not the only one. Who just said, I don't think I can come this week. I, I read ahead in the passage and I don't think I need to be there. Um, so I thank you for being here. And I encourage them to be here. Because again, this is one of the most unique messages to prepare. And 
normally I kind of just have an outline and I go from it, but I wrote a lot down because I want to be very clear in how I communicated this. So I'm sorry if it seems like I'm staring at my iPad a lot tonight. I've had, um, and I think some of the Texans were, were, were kidding, the phone calls were kidding around, but I know some of them were serious. And I realized that last week I felt that we need to understand how hard-hitting our words are and what our words communicate about our broken heart. And this week I think we need to approach this topic from a different viewpoint. Like I said, my past is somewhat playing into this, and I want to explain why I was raised in what is now being called, or maybe it was at the time, it's a new phrase to me, but the purity culture. Before you write me off thinking I'm going to introduce something against the Bible, I assure you I am not, but I want to take a minute to explain this, because I feel many people here know exactly what I'm talking about. First, I want to be very clear, raising or discipling children and teens and adults to honor Jesus with their body and God-given sexuality is correct and commanded. First Thessalonians 4.3. It is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that is a good thing. But second, the, the side effects of this uh, purity culture, which I don't think anybody purposely intended to do, was to bring shame and guilt, which is normal when you are in sin. It is spirit-led to get you out of sin. But it also brought along with it shame and guilt to people who may not have had control of the situation. Or something simple was done to them at an age or a place in life where they were manipulated or deceived or sinned against. And then they believed something was wrong with them. And that they would never be pure, viewed as pure ever again. No matter the situation, no matter how much they sought forgiveness from God, no matter how much people and counselors and pastors told them that they were not the guilty part or that they had been forgiven. Third, and maybe it's just me, but I was in a lot of situations, both in cultures growing up or in places that I was on staff at or in leadership at, where self-righteousness was encouraged and promoted, and anybody with any sexual type sin was highly punished, highly publicized, and highly shamed to the point that the person involved and even the people watching were to believe by actions, not that this was ever spoken, that sexual sin there, and just there is no forgiveness or there is just not enough forgiveness for them. And fourth, the preceding things are nothing new to the people that Jesus is preaching to on the side of the mountain where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5. And I'll explain through the rest of this evening that Jesus is preaching on these things because Jesus is trying to bring hope for the hopeless. I want you to know up front that the point of the message tonight is to bring hope to those who are here tonight who feel like they are exhausted, like they are chasing the wind, and who feel like they have no hope. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Will, you might throw me my water on that chair there. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 27, and I'll explain uh, some of the words that we're going to be reading over and what they meant in, um, in a general sense in today's culture, but also what they would have meant to the listeners in this culture. 
starting in verse 27. As you have heard that it was said, again, going back to Jesus, bringing up a specific command in the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. By the way, I just want to be very clear, don't do that. Jesus is never promoting you hurting yourself. I want to be very clear right up front. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Again, don't do that. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus, as he continues this, last week we called it heart check number one. And today we are in heart check number two. Jesus wanted the people to see they were all on the same level. Nobody can produce the righteousness that God requires except Christ. Remember, we left off two weeks ago and Jesus saying, unless you surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And everyone was crushed. Because the saying at the time was, if only two people can ever make it into heaven, one will be a scribe, one will be a Pharisee. So they thought they had no hope. But then Jesus continues to actually go after the scribes and the Pharisees. That Jesus is actually going after those who thought, and the scribes and the Pharisees had it written, that it's okay to think whatever you want to think. It's okay to hate somebody and call them names as long as I don't actually murder them. It's not sin. And the same thing here. It's okay to lust after a woman that is not my wife or to lust after anybody as long as they don't actually act on it. And what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is you are all on the same level playing field. Jesus understood that there were many self-righteous listeners who were gauging their spirituality upon viewing themselves better than someone else and not on God's standard. Again, Jesus used murder as a way to segue into anger, name-calling, and hatred. Here he uses adultery to segue into lust, which leads to sexual immorality. And again, sexual immorality, and I just wanted to find this. And the reason that I'm not spending a ton of time going into this is because I don't think anyone in here would be like, I disagree that these are wrong. Last week, I felt like we had to kind of spend some time understanding that our words are a form of hatred and it shows our broken heart. But I think as we talk about uh, lust and adultery and pornography and you name it, any of those things, I doubt anyone in here is going to be like, oh, I wish you had clearly defined what I was doing because I just don't feel like I'm sinning in that area. So sexual immorality is any sexual touching outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Lust is to crave or desire a sexual experience outside of your spouse. And the divorce that Jesus is talking about 
and I, again, I don't have time to go into an exhaustive look at divorce. I'm fine getting coffee with you and discussing it. But without doing an exhaustive look on divorce, simply the Jewish people had manipulated what God had permitted back in Exodus. Uh, they had uh, taken this permitted divorce because Jesus and God knew that they were sinners. And it really it was very much done to protect the woman who in this culture just didn't have much say. And the leaders, the, the spiritual leaders, had manipulated it. In fact, Matthew 19, they said, well, then why did God command divorce? And Jesus says, nobody commanded divorce. You rewrote the law to literally, if your wife didn't cook the meal you wanted, you could divorce her. If she did anything, if you just didn't find her attractive, if you wanted a younger, younger version, whatever it was, and it's even his disciples say, whoa, 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 Jesus, I don't think that's right. <laughs> divorce was so commonplace in the Jewish culture. Divorce was so commonplace in the Roman culture uh, that the, the early church probably was started by almost everybody that was divorced. It was recorded, there were some marriages that, uh, there were people in Roman culture that's recorded were married over 34 times in their life. Before we were shocked at that, they may have been the people starting the church. Why? Because they understood, they, they experienced forgiveness in a way that people that weren't there couldn't. So it wasn't even just these outsiders who were divorced, Jesus' disciples, the people that we read the books they wrote and study what they did, they're like, hey, Jesus, let's not get you carried away with that. I don't think that's right. Here's what the point of this heart check is. We need Jesus' righteousness, not our own. We need Jesus' righteousness, not our own. We are so quick to judge or jump on bandwagons or to blow up social media about certain sexual sins. And by doing that, we are saying, this one is worse than the one that I'm involved in. That thing, that's worse than my lust. We put gauges and we put things on them. Jesus wants us to understand we all are on the same playing field. If you have ever had lust in your heart, if you have ever viewed anything that caused you to lust, and it can be a TV show, and I'm not picking on anybody, but let's just say The Bachelor. There's, there's lust there. You are just as much in need of Jesus' righteousness as the woman who was caught in adultery that they were getting ready to stone. And what we see Jesus doing over and over and over again, to the point that that's what he became known as, is he was hanging out with the prostitutes. In John 4, he was with a Samaritan woman who had been rejected by the other women of that community who were the rejected community of the Jews. She was the reject of the reject of the reject, and yet that's where Jesus went. And that's what Jesus used to turn around the entire village and turn them to Christ. Jesus stepped in the way and said, let whoever is without sin throw the first stone to the woman caught in adultery. Jesus was known for being with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Why? Because they knew where they were. The Pharisees didn't like it. They didn't like being called out. We need Jesus' righteousness, not our own. If you're a visitor, you are welcome to listen in because it's going to be really awkward if you get up and leave. If you're a guest host. But Hope Church, we are a family. A big family. And if it's something I have a lot of experience in, it is being part of a big, supportive family. In the middle of seven kids, six boys, all of us talk to each other every day. 
We have been known. We have a reputation. It's why I moved to South Carolina where I knew nobody. <laughs> uh, this is two different sister-in-laws told my wife before um, we'd even thought about kids. And they said, just so you know, Hibberds, especially Hibbard boys, are just demon-possessed. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. All of them said, don't think that you're better than us. When we'd go to family gatherings, like, just, they, we tried. My one sister-in-law has a master's degree in early childhood education, and they said we would sit there and judge the other family. Our kids will never do that. And now we're three kids in, and they all do that. And we can't stop them. <laughs> so it's one thing, and as, as we grew up, all of us just became perfect models of unbelievable sinners. <laughs> who are so desperate for Jesus' righteousness every day. But in that, we became a big, supportive family. A family that is there in Hope Church. This is what I pray that we are, or that what we become, or that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, growing up, I started like trying to remember, who did I ever hear preach through the Sermon on the Mount? And I don't know anybody. If I ever sat in a church, doesn't anybody preach the Sermon on the Mount? And now I know why. <laughs> But a family, a Hope Church family that is there when a sibling messes up. Or sometimes we are a sibling who finds themselves having to deal with the consequences of our own sin. Or the shame that was put on us because of someone else's sin. The thing that we always find in my family, and I hope that's the case here at Hope Church, is that we are not alone. But supported by people who love them and want to help them walk through the situation. I know that as a family, there are many people here who know that they are guilty of some of these things in the past. Some people here are guilty of the things they are presently involved in, and others are here and they just don't feel like there is any hope for the future. They feel alone. They feel like they're the only one. There are people who come to church and feel like they are being judged by everyone else because they feel shame from their past. And there are people that come who feel good about themselves because they think they are better than those other dirty people. Jesus is telling the guilty and those who feel shame that there is hope found in him. And Jesus is telling the self-righteous that they are just as guilty as anybody else. But there is hope found in him and the righteousness that only he can provide. So how do we apply this? I'm glad you asked if you have a Bible like mine, turn back a page. You may already be there. You can tell this is difficult for me because I never drink this much water or any water while I'm preaching. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Hopefully it sounds familiar because you may have one of these and you're in the process of memorizing the Beatitudes. Just a quick reminder, shout out there. You can also use the Bible. You don't have to have a bookmark. It's written in your Bible, too. <laughs> Starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, or I like some people say, they will be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to review those first four of the Beatitudes. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that they are spiritually bankrupt. That they have no hope apart from God. They're blessed. Why? Because it should make them have humility and make them run towards God. Blessed are those who mourn. Remember, mourning. They mourn over their sin. For they will be comforted. We said, happy are the sad, for they will be happy. <laughs> Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who desire the righteousness that only Christ can give. So how does this play out in our lives, and what does this have to do with what we are talking about? Number one, we are poor in spirit when we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. Humility allows us to keep from judging the very people God has called us to serve. And who are we to serve? Everyone. Everyone that God has placed in our life. We have an ability to serve them in some way, to point them to the very Jesus that we know. Because of our spiritual bankruptcy, we knew we needed him. Second, when we have a proper perspective on our sin and mourn over our sin. In other words, that mourning turns us to repentance, turns us to running towards Christ as the only one who can give us what we need. So we mourn over our sin, which causes repentance which causes us joy. And when we do that, it doesn't allow us to rejoice over ours because at least it isn't as bad as that guy's. But a saying we used to say a couple years ago, I realized we need to bring it back, and it's this. I wish I hated my sin as much as I hate yours. I can justify mine, but yours I cannot justify. I wish I hated my sin as much as I hate yours. Number three, our meekness allows us to be used by God. Where we said meekness is being the, the ability to turn over everything to God and say it is all yours. My past experience, my, my knowledge, my wisdom, my resources, whatever it is, it is all yours. I am being meek and allowing you to control everything. And our meekness allows us to be used by God. Our past experiences... Our past forgiveness, and among everything else, to be able to help those around us. Galatians 6 1 says to carry each other's burdens. It doesn't say stand at a distance and point. Carry each other's burdens. We must come alongside our brothers and sisters in this family and not shame them, not run from them, but help them. Get arm in arm with them. Walk with them. And number four, 
The goal is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as we crave and desire the transformation that only God can bring because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the empty grave and what only the Holy Spirit can do in us. Remember, the Holy Spirit exists to transform us into the image of Christ, but we need each other as we do this together. It's one thing you remember, it's this, that no matter your past sins, no matter your, your past lust, no matter your, your past addictions, no matter your past divorces, no matter all the things that Satan tries to convince you and me of, that we are no good and God cannot use us, we must realize how powerful God is and how incredible his forgiveness is and how grateful we should be every day for the grace and mercy he shows to us with every breath we take. Sal isn't here tonight, so I'll use Therese as an example of this. If you knew Therese, um, Therese passed away the Friday before lockdown. And uh, such an awesome woman. And uh, there's a couple times Therese would come in, she ran slides for us, and she would come in and she'd be like, oh, I gotta talk to you. In her beautiful New Jersey accent. And she would go outside in the hall and she goes, Satan's doing it again. Satan's telling me I'm not good enough. Satan had, uh, Teresa had a pretty rough child. And she would say, I, you gotta pray with me because I know Satan's wrong. <laughs> we prayed in the hallway. She would go in, sit behind the computer. And anybody in the sound booth knew nobody was singing louder than Teresa. <laughs> missed that. We're all in that same situation. We're all in that situation where Satan is lying to us and he's trying to tell us we're no good. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll take another drink of water. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 14. Again. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Again, the Corinthians. Known for so long as the worst church ever, and I keep realizing now they actually kind of had it figured out. Yeah, they made some terrible mistakes. That's what church should look like a bunch of people who are broken coming together, trying to grow, trying to transform, being there for each other. Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we, those who were once dead in sin, from Ephesians, that we might become the righteousness of God. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song and then move into a time of communion. And this is very planned. And I want you to listen to the words of the song. I want you to meditate on the passage we've just read and the one we're about to read. And I want you to think through this. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to, to think about, to, to examine ourselves when we go to the Lord's table, when we take part in communion, that we would examine ourselves and be able to say, where am I in this? I want you to ask yourself, are you struggling because you believe Satan's lie? That what you have done in the past, or maybe what you are still battling right now, that there is no forgiveness for? That maybe it works for someone else, but the God of all created things isn't powerful enough to forgive you. Psalm 103, one of my favorite songs. Psalm I read pretty regularly and prescribe it pretty regularly. It says, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Best benefit package in the world. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Let's not forget David is writing this. David, whose sins are well documented. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembered no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all the heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. This evening, if you were here and you have never made that step to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, my prayer is that during this next song, you talk to God. You talk to him and that you confess everything to 
and most incredible, forgiving God, the creator of all, who knows you, who knows every single one of us here. But for those of you who maybe you are here and you're saying, oh wow, that's me. I've been judging people for a long time. Or, oh, that's me, I'm still involved in this. Or, that's me, I just can't seem to break free from this. This is the part where I said, call me, text me, come talk to me. Will, anyone you see up here on stage, we wanna help you so bad. We've been there. We know what it's like. We know that hopeless feeling. We wanna get you, we wanna talk to you or get you in touch with people who can help you. We wanna be there for each other. We have resources available to us that we want to make available to you as well. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. Please let us know how we can help. I'm going to close in prayer. And we're going to go into a time of singing. You can feel free to sit where you are and pray. Stand up and sing. Kneel down. Whatever you need to do. Throughout the next song. And then we're going to go into a time of communion together as the family of Christ, as God's, as Jesus' bride and body to remember all that he has done for us. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to experience forgiveness. Lord, that you are not, I thank you that you are not judgmental like I have been or that I have felt before. You are a loving, forgiving God. But I pray for everyone here this evening, everyone who's going to listen to the podcast, watch online, or that you speak to their heart, that they would know your love. Whether they don't know you yet, whether they've known you for a long time, anywhere in between, that they would understand your forgiveness and your love, that you would give them the courage to reach out and ask for help if that's where they're at. They would know that we're here to love them. We're here to be a supportive brother or sister. Knowing that the only reason that we can be a supportive brother or sister is because somebody was there for us at one time too. So I pray that you just work in our hearts in this time before we do. Thank you and remember what you've done for us. Thank mm-hmm. you.